0: Welcome to another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast. On this show, we take a relational approach to turning readers into fans by using expensive words based on our emotions to write compelling stories. This way, instead of finding customers who read, we find friends and fans who will go on any storytelling path with us as we walk down the winding roads that make up our author journeys. Get ready to learn more about writing the story of your heart right now on Writing Expensive Words. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast. Today we are going to be doing a real R E E L story breakdown for the Queen's Gambit Part Two. And if you haven't listened to epi- uh, if you haven't listened to Part One, I would say that you should probably go listen to that first. Uh, as always, the real story breakdowns are spoiler heavy. So if you haven't watched the second episode of the Queen's Gambit yet, and you want to be completely unsurprised, you should watch that first and then come back to this video where we're going to break down everything. All the juicy tidbits that will help you make your story captivating and compelling. So let's get into it. This episode is probably going to be a little bit longer than my other episodes because I have over two and a half pages of notes just from this one episode. It took me three different sessions of sitting and watching it to get this down for you because there are lots of little juicy hidden nuggets of storytelling in this episode And I cannot wait to talk about it. Let's dive in. So when we left Elizabeth Harmon, who is our protagonist, uh, at the end of episode one, she had just overdosed on tranquilizers. And as a result, we find out in episode two that her punishment is that she is no longer allowed to play chess with Mr. Scheibel. But before we go further into the story, one of the things that I want to talk about is jargon. And if you're a writer, you should know what jargon means because jargon is talking about language that's specific to a type of profession or industry. And in this case, we need to know some jargon about chess and the way that the writers introduce uh, the lay person, the chess non-experienced to the jargon from chess, is through Mr. Scheibel. And um, one of the really fun things about episode two is that we get to see all of the things that Mr. Scheibel taught Elizabeth in episode one play out in real life. Yeah, I was so excited. Um, there's just so much amazing foreshadowing. Like, I feel this series is one of the best at foreshadowing, An episode one, One, we already have foreshadowing for episode two, and then in episode two, we basically have foreshadowing for the rest of the entire show, which is blow my mind awesome, and I want to tell you how they did it so that you can do it in your own storytelling, because it's great. And any time we see something that is really cool, or you read something, or we listen to something that's awesome and that makes us excited, we should always think, how can I break these ideas down into their most simple forms so that I can execute them in my own storytelling? That's what I do. That's how I've been able to create all of the crazy frameworks that we use at Literary Symmetry for our clients. And you can do it too. It's not like you have to have a Kristen-type brain to do it you can do it. Uh, A book that I've been reading recently that I want to recommend to you is Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. It is great because there's nothing new under the sun, right? The Bible says it. But what we can do is take awesome inspirational things, figure out how those things were put together, break them apart, and then model our own storytelling after them. It's not, you know, that's stealing like an artist. And that's when you don't just steal someone's exact thing but you break it apart and you figure out how can I use this for myself and that is the entire purpose of a real story breakdowns and lit story breakdowns so if you have to introduce jargon you can use this method that they used inside the queen's gambit where you're having one character teach something to another character in an interesting way if mr scheibel would have just sat down and been like listen beth These are all the rules of chess. I'm going to just tell you all of them. And then we're going to move to the next scene. That would have been super boring. That would not have been engaging at all. But the way that we learn it is we watch Elizabeth learn it. And we see her interacting with Mr. Scheibel in a really endearing way. And so we're like, cool, this scene is touching. But what we don't realize as a viewer is that, oh, if I don't know anything about chess... Which, I'll be honest, I do not know that much about chess. My brother is, like, a killer sniper chess player. So I avoided playing chess with him after a certain point. And, yeah, Travis, my husband, he's the chess guy in our family. He's teaching my daughter, Kati, to play chess. And they're both really, like, it's not my thing, y'all, okay? I'm I'm not good at it. But we see the interactions between Beth and Mr. Scheibel. And at the same time, our brain is getting programmed with the jargon that we need to understand in order to move forward in the plot and understand what's happening to Beth. Do we understand all the intricacies of the moves that she's using if we're not super chessy? No, we don't. But, you know, we know enough, right? And obviously people, you know, I was watching today, I'm like, Gosh, they had to like memorize these crazy chess sequences because of course they had to get it right because like in everything, there will be people out there who are really amazing at chess who are watching the show. And if something's wrong, they're going to know it. So you can't fake details like that in your story. And if you don't know a lot about something before you write it, you need to talk to someone else who does or read a ton of books. Okay, that was a little bit of, of a tangent, but it's relevant because it has to do with this story and it has to do with your story. Okay, so let's take a look at my notes. All right, so something really exciting, supposedly, happens to Beth in the second episode. We see that there are some uh, prospective parents who come to meet her. And one of the things that happens is that um, (laughs) Miss Deardolph has Beth lie about how old she is because she wants her to be younger to seem more appealing. And I think that's the idea, right, with adoption and with fostering, is that the younger they are, the more uh, desirable they are. And that's a huge shame. Um, I cannot tell you how many teenagers need good homes, like they need stable environments too. They're trying to learn how to turn into and transform into an adult. That's super vital. So my heart went out to Beth, but also to a very important character we met in the first episode. Jolene, who ha- has realized at this point that she's not going to be adopted, and Beth even says to her, I'm sorry, and she's like, about what? And she's like, that you didn't get adopted. And it's so heartbreaking. And you're like, Ugh. and you're like, I wish that Jolene could be in this show all for every episode. And I know a lot of um people have talked about that on the internet, so maybe there will be a spin-off. I don't know that would be amazing if it's written in the same style i'm down i would totally watch it i'd probably watch it more than once like i'm doing with this series uh so beth uh gets adopted and while she's like packing up her stuff to leave she realizes that um she doesn't have her chess book her chess book is missing and you know, there's been a time jump forward, obviously, because they're like kind of smallish in the in the first episode, and then now they're teenagers. Um, but So Beth can't find her book about chess that Mr. Scheibel gave her, and it's making her upset. And Jolene's like, she's like, did you take my book? And she's like, well, why would I need a book like that? Which of course is a true statement, because obviously Jolene does not play chess. Um, but if you're like, Kristen, I have to know what happened to the book. Just hold on. We're going to get there. It's coming back around. And that's one of the really um, fun experiences I've been having while going back through this show for a second time is that I can see all the the little nods. I can see the meticulous planning that went into this story. So um, Beth gets adopted by a couple, um, Alston and Alma Wheatley. And that's something that I personally wouldn't have done. I wouldn't have given both of the characters who are her adoptive parents names that start with the same letter because that's confusing. But um, we, you know, it, for the most part, in the be- like in the beginning of episode number two, they're Mister and Mrs. Wheatley to her, right? She doesn't call them Mom and Mom and Dad. And Mister Wheatley is like, ugh. So <laughs> we find out that. Beth has been adopted and we're like yay but then we're like because we find out that the family that she's been adopted to Alston and Alma Wheelie that they have some serious um (laughs) like messed upness like they're very unhealthy going on they have lost a child which I'm gonna circle back around to in this episode because there's this one line that I was like wait what Um, but so they've lost a child and they wanted an older kid and even when um, Beth is like it doesn't seem like Mr. Wheatley likes me Uh, Alma Wheatley is like oh on the contrary dear which she talks like that throughout the whole thing and it's um you know it's something you could pull off in written dialogue because you know I always talk about how you shouldn't use accents you shouldn't use slang but obviously this is a period piece I would say that's that it's historical fiction right it's based on a real time period and so the language that she uses would work in written dialogue and it really communicates that era you know um like like that she says on the contrary now we wouldn't say that or we wouldn't say dear at the end of everything there are people around this part of the country where i live in uh, pennsylvania who call everyone dear but i feel like they're mostly like over 60 So it's not a modern phraseology that we would use, but in this instant, it works very effectively. So um, she's with the Wheatleys and we get to see her go into a public school, a school outside of the Methuen home for the first time, which to me, I was like, yes, I'm so excited for her. And then we find out that not only do they not have a chess club where you're like what the heck come on universe like throw her a bone um but that they have these clubs but the only way you get to be in them is if you're invited what but i know that's what it was like back then in that time period but it just sucks it's like bullying to the next level and i think that the viewer really feels for um not only beth but like some of the other girls around her because they're like that would suck. Like now, if you can only join a club by invitation, that would be considered like elitist or racist or all these other things. Right. And so we don't, our modern, uh, concept of life really makes it so that we're predispositioned by these facts to connect with Beth even more and to care about her even more because things are just not going that great for her. So, um, She goes to the school, and then the girls, all right, the mean girls. There are mean girls in every generation. Uh, The mean girls make fun of her because she is, like, she's basically poor, which she's going to figure out really soon in this episode, And she has really bad, like what they consider unfashionable shoes and dress. And then on top of it, of course, she's super smart. She's able to explain what a binomial is when no one else is able to in the math class. And then the girl's like, oh, great, another effing brain. And of course, there's language in the show, but there's no language in the show. So I censored it. And so you're just like, come on, like is Beth really better off in the situation that she was in the Methuen home? And at first, we're not sure. And it's that uncertainty that's like propelling us forward. We're like cartwheeling down the hill of this story because we have to find out, is this worse? Like, should we be happy for her? I have to know. Um, So we then are shown because mr Wheatley is like oh you know he comes home from his traveling salesman job and he's like doesn't she ever change her clothes because he's nothing but like snarky and rude throughout the whole thing of course um and so alma's like oh i guess we should you know go get you some new clothes and they go bargain clothes shopping basically is what beth finally figures out because the girls at school are like oh did you go to that store i would never go there i would be caught dead going there um but she wants to fit in and she she doesn't and i wonder if you can guess what i'm gonna say what is that wanting to fit in but not being able to fit in that is a point of connection for the viewer because it is a very relatable thing to happen to a person or to a character how many of us have felt like we didn't fit in if you um yeah if you read uh my newer book realize your story transform your life i start out with a very universal type tale like this where i was like Listen, I grew up on the wrong side of the train tracks. I was too white for the people who lived near me, and I wasn't rich enough for the white people who like lived on the other side, you know? And it's that point of connection, which in my case was a true story. Uh, it's the point of connection that makes you care even more about the character, and this is one of those universal things. So anytime you can pull in a universal theme that many people relate to for your character you're gonna win brownie points you're gonna win connection points with the reader and um we also see that uh beth asks for a chess set at the store and mrs wheelie is like oh well dear i'm gonna start giving you 40 cents uh a week for an allowance and we like for us we might be like 40 cents that's nothing but at that point you can you can tell right inflation is an insane thing it's like entropy it will never go away Um, but the money was worth far more at that point okay page two of my notes so beth goes to the library right anytime a character goes to a library in like a book or a movie I'm always like yes the library because the library is like my home planet it's where all the books live and that's where I love to be Um, and the best part about libraries if you don't know I feel like if you don't know this I'm helping you out is that you can read books for free you can listen to audiobooks for free you don't have to pay anything if you have a public library you can read you can learn hard things That was something that was really rough for us living in Greece was like there was no library um, where we could get books. And I don't know if there is now. I know you can go to the Stavros near our host center and there's like a million books in there. I don't know how many are in Greek, how many are in English, etc. But at least it exists now. So that's cool. So she goes to the, pli- to the library to look for books on chess and finds out that there are chess players called grandmasters. And this is another instance of we're learning jargon the same time that Beth is learning them. And it doesn't feel like, oh, the person who wrote this is explaining this to me. It's It gives you this organic knowledge accumulation. And that's exactly what you want. So she finds out that there are players called Grandmasters. And um, so the librarian tells her to get the Jose Capablan- Capablanca book. I couldn't read my writing there for a second. Uh, so she goes to get the book and she sees it. And you can see, like, on her face, this insane, like, childlike joy that she found the book, that she gets to read this book for free. Um, because at this point she still has like no money no resources um but the thing is she sees like the mean girl right the number one mean girl of course she sees the mean girl making out and getting groped by this guy and the girl notices her and she's like i noticed you beth Harmon, because of your shoes and ugh. so but we do see in this that Um, And this is like a theme throughout the story is there's this loss of innocence with Beth, but also this urge to explore her sexuality, which is a really big driving force as we get further into the story. And we're not going to talk about it this episode, but it's coming up and we're going to talk about sexual tension as a driving force to get the reader um through the book and we're going to talk about when it works and when it's a gimmick that falls flat because it can be both you can't just depend on sex for everything okay so in real life and in storytelling (laughs) so uh beth um gets the book and she's reading it and then we see that mrs wheatley who's randomly doing horribly by the way she says that she has a proclivity for viruses Proclivity is another one of those words, right, that we don't really use now. Um, but uh, she asks Beth to go get her medication from the... F- oh, wait. No, I'm jumping ahead. Sorry. I'm jumping ahead. Uh, she asks Beth to go buy cigarettes for um, her and gives her a note. And Beth goes to the store. And while she's, like, waiting for him to get the cigarettes and ring it up... She sees a magazine about chess. And yes, it's one of those moments where you're like, woo! Uh, <laughs> because anytime she's excited, you're excited because they've done such a great job of making you root for her, which is a lot of reasons, but obviously she's she's got the Anne of Green Gables thing going for her. She's got red hair and she's an orphan, y'all. Okay, so she goes to buy the cigarettes. And she sees the chess review. And when she opens it up, she sees a tournament calendar. This is like the, I would say this is probably the inciting incident. This not learning chess, but like realizing, oh my gosh, I can make this my life. Well, we could say learning chess is the inciting incident. It happens so early. I would have to figure out like the timeline and everything, but this is definitely a big one. This is a plot point for sure. So she sees that there are tournaments and what she ends up doing is she pretends to buy a newspaper and then she old school shoves the magazine inside and walks out of the store and she's reading it and she's talking to Mrs. Wheatley about it. And Mrs. Wheatley is kind of clueless. And also, like I said, she's, I would say that she suffers from depression, which she's had a child die and her husband is never home. And so... Yeah, we can understand, right? We can relate to that. It makes sense. But of course, back then they wouldn't say, "Oh, she's depressed because of all these things." They give her what they like they give her the tranquilizer uh pills that they gave Beth in the beginning and say that she needs tranquility, tranquility. Um so Beth becomes aware of the money problems in this conversation after she's gotten the the magazine and you know miss wheatley's like oh i just used the last of the instant coffee i only have this many dollars but that's not enough to get to the end you know beth is like is that enough and she's like for the end to get to whenever mr wheatley comes back probably not and so beth realizes because she's a problem solver that she can make money at the tournament uh and help take care of them. But the problem is she doesn't have the money to enter into the tournament, right? Because it's like a pot. Everyone who enters pays in. And then at the end, the winner gets a prize. So she decides she's going to write to Mr. Shively. Throwback to Mr. Shively, right? Uh, and she decides she's going to write and ask him for the $5 um, to enter into the tournament. And she'll send him 10 if she wins. And we're going to find out all about that later. Um Because, I mean, that's the thing I love about this series is there's really nothing that happens where they don't talk about it in another episode later on and describe what has happened and why that moment was important. And we obviously know, right, that Beth needs to be entering into chess tournaments because chess is her thing. And that's how she's going to preserve herself and Mrs. Wheatley from, like, not having food to eat because... They're like starving type of poor at this point. Uh, So then we see her going to get the tranquilizers and Beth realizes, oh, my gosh, this is the same tranquilizer I was addicted to at the Methuen home. So she takes some, you know, she's like stealing some for herself and she that's going to come into play at the end of this episode. Uh, Beth sees, she goes into the pharmacy to get the tranquilizers right, and she looks at the chess review, and who is on the cover? And I did not realize this at all the first time I was watching it. It's Benny Watts. See, so when you're like, maybe you're thinking, Kristen, there's no way that all these characters get introduced in this episode. Benny Watts is the only chess character besides Vasily, uh, the Russian player, who, like, is... (laughs) not introduced in this this episode but he is because we see his picture on the magazine and there's just so many tiny and important moments of foreshadowing in this series like i said they're like so good at it and people who are reading people who are watching Love foreshadowing because it's pre-framing their brain to be excited when the thing that you foreshadow actually happens and that gives them like a hit of dopamine and they're all, yes, my brain is rewarding me for engaging with this story. It's awesome. It's awesome for storytellers. It's awesome for story hearers or story readers. Okay, so uh, the chess competition. This is like where you get to meet all the main players and they are maybe not in every episode but every single person she meets is going to come back around not every person she plays but every person that she like engages with in a meaningful way they're gonna be coming back y'all they're gonna be some of them are going to be extremely instrumental in this story and so these are the people that she meets she meets harry Beltic. I personally think that Harry Beltic's character arc is the most stark and compelling in this whole series. You might be like, well, what about Beth? Okay, yeah, Beth is compelling, too. But I am telling you, just wait. I am going to dive all the way into this Harry Beltic character in the coming episodes. He is awesome, Uh, there are some mistakes he makes okay we all make mistakes but I just think his character arc is like really shaped like a bell and it's lovely to watch him in this episode when you know what's coming later so she also meets the twins Matt and Mike who are going to become instrumental as well and they're just like who is this girl because she comes up and she asks all these questions And as the episode progresses, she asks more and more questions. And one of the things that I really love about her and that I think endears her to um, viewers is that she doesn't care when people get annoyed at how many questions she's asking. And she doesn't seem ashamed that she doesn't know what some of these people consider to be common sense things. Of course she doesn't know about chess. She was living with Mr. Scheibel and they took away all the chess stuff, right? Like she has no point of reference for what a chess competition will be like, what a grandmaster is, how to get rated. And also, as I've mentioned, this is a way for us to learn the jargon that's involved with chess playing without us feeling annoyed, like we're having some kind of chess lesson. We're learning it along with Beth. Uh, She also meets Annette uh, Packer, who is the girl she's playing. And when they're playing, you know... Sorry, I couldn't hear what you said. Oh, my gosh. I said sorry, and I thought I said Siri. Uh, (laughs) That scared me. So we also meet Annette Packer, who... um, they're playing right and then beth is like are they supposed to put the girls together and she's like they're not supposed to but they do but if you beat like if you progress you know they'll have to put you against guys and so we see the idea that um you know women are still definitely the underdogs in the chess playing world and in society at large in this historical fictional narrative okay she also meets um DL Towns who is going to be a really important character for lots of different reasons but you can see when she's playing him what she's doing is she's like touching her lips so there's a suggestion that uh you know she has an attraction to him She's 14 or 15 at this point. She's, you know, they lied about her being 13 and he's definitely in college. So there's an age difference, but that's not their biggest obstacle. We will talk about their biggest obstacle later. Okay. Um, So. She learns about chess clocks and touch move from Annette. Annette is just a really charming character. Also, at the end of this episode, when finally Beth has progressed and she's beat Towns and she's beat everybody else, she's going to play Harry Beltic. And um, wait, when she beats Towns, she realizes that she started her period for the first time and she goes into the bathroom and she's like, I thought I was sick. And Annette comes in to talk to her and she helps her like she gives her I, I don't. It's like pads or a tampon or something. But um, Beth doesn't know how to use it, so she just throws it in the trash and, like, uses a wad of TP, which is the old-school way to go. And we see that... (sighs) you know, Annette is like there to guide her through a lot of these first moments, first time playing in a tournament, first time having her period. And she's like, yeah, I throw up every time I get my period. And so we're like, okay, well, you know, back then they would have been like, oh, that's difficult. And then now they would be like, probably like do some diagnosis to see whether or not she has endometriosis. (laughs) Right. Um, So we just see there's like a lot of nods toward the historical setting, but also these meaningful relationships. And yes, Annette is coming back. I wish she was coming back in a different way, but it's going to be—it's going to be upsetting. I'll just say that. So, Mister. Then we learn uh, after she's won. Okay, well she goes against um Harry Beltic and she beats him because he lets the clock run because he's like I feel like it's his way of saying, How dare you make me play a, a girl? And obviously Beth is young. She's like straight out a girl. Um, but he, he is just an arrogant jerk face and in the end, you know, he loses and the the fact that he lost is going to spin his character into a completely different trajectory than if he had won. And he's going to do something cool and he's going to learn from this moment, which we're going to see in the next few episodes. So when Beth gets home, she tells Mrs. Wheatley that she has won. But Mrs. Wheatley is like a mess. And we find out that Mr. Wheatley has left. And Beth is like, well, are they going to take me away if you don't have a husband? She's like, you've described it aptly, dear, you know, with the deer always. Um, And she's like, not if we lie about it. And then Beth's like, well, that's easy enough. And she's like, you're such a good soul. But when I think that's before she wins, actually. And so then when she wins and Mrs. Wheely is looking through the chess review, she realizes, dang, we can actually make some money and like provide for our family and Beth gets to play chess, which she loves. So it's a win-win. And she comes up with the scheme of telling the school that Beth has mononucleosis, and which she read about in a magazine. And I just have to say, like, I love how clever Mrs. Wheatley is. Like, she's figured out the money uh, about going to Cincinnati for the next tournament. She's figured out an excuse. And you can tell, like, she's sharp. Mr. Wheatley is Losing out and he's a jerk. So, but the one thing that she says is like, now that I'm no longer a wife, maybe I can learn to be a mother. And that's when I was like, ding, I'm super interested because you know, she was a mom, you know, that her child died. So what is she saying? Is she saying that she was never a good mother, that she really never knew how to be a mother to a child and that now she's willing to learn because she is responsible for Beth Uh, And then in the next scene, we see that Beth looks in the reflection of the window, her own reflection, and sees her mother looking back at her and remembers the thing that her mom said right before she died. So it's just a really nice moment where we see that Beth is missing her real mom, but at the same time, she's embracing the thing, the now that she's in with Mrs. Wheatley. Okay. And... Also, we see that in the tournament with Harry, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, Harry, with Harry Beltic. I have like so many names written down on my paper. Um, that's the thing about this many characters is in a book, I would have, have notes as I'm reading if this were in a book because it's just so many people. Um, but in television and in film, it's easier to have a larger cast. And I will talk about that. Uh, I'll do a whole show about, Numbers of characters in books and how to help your reader keep track of them. So, we see that when she's losing and freaking out, like at some point she starts panicking while she's playing Harry because she's like, oh my gosh, I can't win. She goes in the bathroom and she takes the tranquility pill, the tranquilizer, and she's able to do that thing that she does where she plays through the rest of the board on the ceiling in her head. Like she can see the physical board when she's on the medication. So, and if you're like, I wish you would stop using the tranquilizers, listen, you're not alone, but this is something that the, um, the show is going to deal with head on. And we saw in the beginning, right? That like she was in a room and she was like super hungover and she was a mess. So we're going to see how addiction shapes her life. And also we're going to see, um... I can't reveal too much without like just giving it away. So we're going to see how her playing on the ceiling plays into everything in the final episode. It's very satisfying. I'm going to save that uh, uh, part six or something. I don't know how many episodes there are right now. My spacing. But we're going to save that for we're going to talk about that in the final episode because it's one of those things that's just like the ultimately satisfying moment. But I don't I'm not going to talk about that anymore. Stop trying to trick me. Okay, so I feel like there was a lot of stuff we could glean from this episode uh, of the show. And we need to remember, here are the key takeaways. You have to have relatability, universal universal experiences, starting your period for the first time. Hello. If you're a woman or you know a woman, that's something that you've experienced, right? Um, or not fitting in, wanting nicer things, <laughs> Uh, understanding that someone you love or someone who's responsible for you doesn't love you back or can't take care of you. These are all things that many of us have gone through. They're universal. And we also learned how to deal with jargon in a way where we can learn with the character and not be um, talked at by the writer so that we know what the jargon is. So next time you're going to write a story that has jargon or that has characters, you know how to do it with the viewer with the reader, not for the reader. And you also know how to mix and sprinkle in those amazing moments of relatability. I hope that you have gotten some great little juicy nuggets like I promised out of this episode. And remember, it is never too late to write the story of your heart. Happy writing. This has been another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast with me, your host, Kristen Spencer, I'd love to hear your amazing writing thoughts and questions from your awesome writing brain. You can find me on Instagram at kristen.n.spencer or at Literary Symmetry. Or you can email me at kns at Literary This podcast is funded by awesome listeners like you. If you'd like to support this podcast and keep it rolling, you can head over to www dot patreon.com forward slash expensive words you can keep all of my hosting and software needs going for the show by donating less than what it costs for one fancy cup of tea a month and to be eligible to join writing coaching calls with me check out the 12 dollar a month sponsorship you will get to ask me questions live about the story of your heart once a month and meet other cool writers thanks again for listening and happy writing